Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn all about something that interests me and I tell you all the best parts. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. As you can see from your episode title, we're going to talk about mythology this week. I know last episode I mentioned Japanese mythology. I'm very excited to get into Japanese mythology, and my book just arrived from the library, so yay! This episode, however, we will not be talking about Japanese mythology because my books just arrived from the library. You couldn't just make it up? Oh, I could have. It would have been terrible, though. It would have been very unique and original. Yeah. Just long lost source and no one... Yeah, the thing about mythology is that, you know, at least the ancient stuff is that not much, you know, not new... There's no new mythology being... Oh, developed today. No, not developed, but it could be discovered. No, 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 no. But I wasn't saying that you should discover it. You oh, could I just see. make it up. Just develop it. It yeah. would be a brand new genre. I see what you mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this week we're going to take um, a mythology path much less traveled and talk about the mythology and legends of the ancient British Isles. I personally knew almost nothing about this before I started research, except for some really like basic Camelot stuff. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, I learned a huge amount. Uh, I found it so interesting that I decided I'll need three episodes to get through it, which is something I suspect may become a common theme as we move forward with this podcast. So this will be part one of the mythology of the British Isles. Cool. Teach me something. Great. But one thing before we start. I just want to throw this out there. Pronouncing these words is tough. <laughs> the letters are not pronounced similarly to English, and they can make some really counterintuitive sounds coming from the background of an English speaker, that is. And like learning all these different sounds and combinations and how to see the words just kind of makes me feel like I'm learning a whole new language, which, yeah, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so all this to say, I'm, I'm very sorry if I butcher any of these pronunciations. I'm trying to use the pronunciation guide from my source text. So hopefully it's going to be pretty close. Okay. And for all you listeners out there, I'll do my best to make fun of Melissa so that you don't have to. Thanks, Everett. You're a pal. Yeah, no problem. Before we go any further, I want to talk about the Celts. Okay. When you hear Celtic or Celts, what do you, what do you think of, Everett? I mean, like Ireland, Scotland type of region of the British Isles. Yeah. Kind of that northern end of the, of the island chains. Seems typical, because, I mean, for me, like, I just think about the British Isles, and when I was younger, exactly, like, just Ireland, Scotland. I, that's what I associate with Celtic yeah. and whatever. Um, but that's really far from the full picture. The Celts were a very important and diverse group of ancient people that uh, probably emerged sometime around seven or 800 BCE from the Austria area in Central Europe. Um, though the location, like, the exact location and timing is still very much up for debate. Sure. Um, then they spread over like much of northern and western Europe. They reached their highest expansion around 275 BCE, and then, well, and they spread to the British Isles a little bit before that, sometime in the fourth century BCE. Uh, the Greeks called them Keltoi, from which we get Celts. Perfect. Again, it's like Greek word, Roman. Romans. The Roman called them Gallia, from which we get Gallic, which is you know, right. a word for French, France type of area. Um, a surprising thing for me to learn this episode, though, is just how big the Celtic population was, like, and how much land they actually ended up covering. They were the largest group of people to inhabit ancient Europe, and their land stretched all the way from Portugal on the west there wow. to, in the east, the Black Sea. 
That's a long ways. Yeah, they had populations as far east as Turkey and Ukraine, even. So were they seafaring often? I mean, to make it to the British Isles, you would think so. And to get across that kind of spance of those countries and potentially they could use the Mediterranean. I wouldn't say super seafaring. Okay. Most of this, this is, I'm just talking about spreading over Europe, mostly continental Europe. Yes, they would have had to use ships and they obviously did sail, but just going from mainland Europe to the British Isles isn't like the kind of seafaring trip that you'd be referring to with like the Vikings or something. They weren't known for that. No, 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 of course not. Um, Anyways, yeah. And then then they stretched as far south as, as the like entire southern tip of france and like up to the top of france like they they were huge and i i had no idea um but you know by the first century ce then celtic populations only existed in ireland scotland wales and a little one in Brittany in northern france Mm -hmm. and that's it so what happened well i mean I, i i bet you could guess let me let me just see if you can guess I would think that it would be some sort of combination of being conquered and forced out or being assimilated into other cultures that were near them. Well, okay. It's a very general guess, though. Did you have a more specific guess? Oh. uh, Knowing what you know about history? I would assume that the Greeks or Romans basically pushed them out. Well, let's find out, shall we? Okay. The Celts had a reputation throughout the Mediterranean as savages. Interestingly, they often battled naked. They were known to fight hard and drink hard, and they were highly sought after for their mercenary services. So pirates. Um, I would like to point out that similar to the Carthage episode, mostly all of our knowledge of the Celts comes from... The Romans. The Romans. Great. So who knows, actually, if they... They might have been perfectly civilized human beings, but the Romans, you know, high and mighty. They threatened Rome. Just their existence of this powerful people, they threatened them. Sure. Also very reminiscent of Carthage and the Punic Wars, the Celts and Romans had their own wars, the Gallic Wars. Yeah. The very short summary of the conflict is this. Celtic tribes often fought with the Romans and they invaded their outposts all along northern Italy. Yeah. In about 387 BCE, Brennus, a Celtic chieftain, attacked and occupied Rome for months. Um... Very interesting, because this was the only time in Rome's 800-year history that it was occupied by a foreign army. Right. Except for the whole fall of Rome part. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) That's a little different. Brennus killed so many Roman senators that really kind of reinforced this barbarian reputation that the Celts seemed to have. Lawless, Um, yeah. But clearly the only ones that could get into Rome there, so good for them, I guess. Now, uh, if we fast forward a few hundred years later, the Roman Empire has conquered several Celtic tribes in the Iberian Peninsula area, you know, Spain, Portugal, that kind of area. They lost all that land. Um, And then in 58 BCE, Julius Caesar began the nine-year Gallic Wars to defeat the Celts and uh, some other tribal kingdoms in Gaul. Some historians think he was uh, acting preemptively, trying to destroy a people that he saw as a threat. But the majority think he started the war to pay off his debts and boost his political career. Which makes sense. It's such a popular strategy. It's still in use today, right? I was going to say, it's never like anytime you go to war, a president you know, suddenly gains a whole bunch of popularity ratings. Rome is nothing like current day anywhere. I make no comments. <laughs> so, after the Gallic Wars, the Celts were confined to northern France and primarily the smaller British Isles because mainland Britain was ruled by Rome. Correct. On the British Isles, the Celtic religion was called Druidism. 
And the Romans, to the surprise of no one, tried to eliminate this polytheistic religion as they had their mm-hmm. own and convert the Celts to Christianity. Yeah. From about 400 CE to 1400 CE, Irish monks worked really hard to preserve many of the ancient Celtic myths in manuscript form. And this is where we get most of our information on Celtic mythology. That's the reason Celtic is so often conflated with Ireland, right. um, because that's where all the records are, right? Well, and it's also like the last y- yes, bastion the vestiges of, of the, yeah. the reigning population. Yeah. So it's hard to know what Celtic mythology might have looked like in the mainland and like Central European populations. We don't have records of that stuff. We have the records of Ireland. So yeah, those two right. are highly tied together. Um, and as far as British mythology and legends go, it's often a mixture of Celtic and Christian themes, especially something like the King Arthur mythos. You yeah. can see that very clearly. Quest for the Holy Grail um, need not be <laughs> explained there. Yeah, correct. Uh, so let's start talking about some Irish mythology. Uh, out of all the different Celtic-based mythologies that developed on the British Isles, Irish is the one that we have the most information on, thanks to those diligent monks. So the majority of the stories I'll tell you are going to be Irish, including the two I'm going to tell today. But I will get into some British and Scots in the next, well, probably the third episode. Okay. So the standard mythology disclaimer applies here. These are stories from a long time ago. There are lots of gaps, areas of conflicting information, opposing information. Different sources and translations make it completely impossible to have one right version of a story. Um, So, you know, if you hear or have heard a different version, I suggest going with whatever version you like better. Since there, you know, can't be right answers, might as well use that as your criteria. Um, And But with Irish mythology, there's a second disclaimer. Um, Irish mythology is a little different. I've never heard this kind of structure before, but it's composed of cycles, which are these series of related stories that are interconnected but aren't usually or always consistent. They kind of represent ages. So like the evolving themes and narratives in each of these cycles reflects the changes of the Irish culture through time. Um, Like as they move from early paganism towards Christianity, the protagonists of the stories move from gods to kings and Mm -hmm. the plots moved from supernatural to more factual. Um, and, And so there are four major cycles the mythological cycle, the Ulster cycle, the Finian cycle, and the historical cycle or cycle of kings. So you can see how it really does go from mythological to royal there sure. by the end. Um, like there are some characters that appear in only one cycle, okay. uh, some that appear in two, three, or even all four, but their characteristics and backgrounds can change depending on which cycle the story is from. Like parentage can change, lineage, like, like things mm-hmm. like that can change. Just like there is conflicting sources of things like lineage and, par- and other mythologies, right? But yeah. but especially because these are groups of stories in one cycle, and then there's another cycle, and they're not super related. Yeah. Um, so again, Irish mythology just really doesn't have any true or right versions of things, and, and like everything's up for interpretation. Um, the two stories I'll tell today both come from the mythological cycle. Cool. It's the earliest cycle, and it's unfortunately the least well-preserved probably because it's the Yeah. Um, it was written in times of paganism before Christianity came to Ireland. And it really reflects that with its stories that tell of gods and supernatural events. Um, this cycle narrates through five different migratory invasions of Ireland, mm-hmm. different races coming in and migrating to Ireland, um, which is really an interesting premise when you think about it. Because instead of having an origin story that tells 
how their people came to be, usually, you know, created by God or yeah. the gods. Instead, we get a series that tells of how people came from elsewhere to live in Ireland. Cool. It's a completely different kind of creation story. Yeah, that is. Um, so the mythological cycle has two races of supernatural beings that are constantly in opposition. It has like a light versus dark, good versus evil type of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a race called the Tuaha de Danon, or just Tuaha de, which is a race of gods and goddesses that represent life and growth in nature and such. Yep. Uh, and they're opposed by the Fomarians, who represent the harmful or destructive powers of nature. The Fomarians have been described as hideous, ugly giants and associated with darkness, like demonic, all these creepy things. Yep. And the Tuaha Day are associated with magic and light and royalty. And sure. later in the Christian, more Christian versions, it's like an angels versus demon things for these two races. Totally makes sense. Um, now, those are not the only races, of course. I did say five migrations. So the, the Tuaha Day used their magical powers to conquer the fear bulugs. And they were themselves defeated by the Milesians, who actually are the human race. Oh. That's kind of how the cycle goes. Every okay. race defeats each other, and then the Milesians come to somehow, I don't know how humans defeated magical beings, but whatever. May or may not ever read that story. And that's the human race. That's how humans came to be in Ireland, the Irish people. Cool. One of the most important gods in all Irish mythology and a member of the Tuatha Day was Lu. He was a hero and a king, and he appears in more than one of the cycles. I guess with different, some different information, though. So I think the first story I'll tell will be Lou's origin story. Everyone loves a good origin story. True. This is tale number one, The Birth of Lou. Our story begins with Balor, a.k.a. the Great Smiter, who is the tyrant king of the Fomarians. Balor is not just a giant, but a one-eyed giant. Some might say a cyclops? Some might, but I don't think I saw that described like that. (laughs) Only I said it. You can say that. That's great. You Mm -hmm. should add that kind of commentary that I can't be sure of, so I didn't include in my outline. I erased it multiple times every time I wrote it. In the middle of Balor's forehead is a single poisonous eye covered with seven woolen blankets. His eye is his secret weapon. With each, with each blanket he removes, the great smiter is able to cause more and more devastation to the earth and to his enemies in battle. It is said that when Balor removes the top blanket, all ferns and water-loving plants on earth wither. With every blanket he removes, the land becomes hotter and drier until finally all seven blankets are gone and everything that falls under Balor's gaze bursts into flame like dry tinder. But despite having what I feel like is a super overpowered attack ability, Balor is scared. Yeah, I mean, he has to walk around with stuff over his eyes most of the time. He's basically blind. <laughs> and I shouldn't say eyes. <laughs> eye. You know, I didn't, no I didn't think about that. Perception. And he can't they see. They didn't really describe how he did anything with blankets over his eye. Well, and so like... They didn't talk about that. If, if, if it's everything that's within his gaze, 
how is there even segregations between the seven blankets? Because ultimately his gaze only comes to be once they're all removed. So it's really an all or nothing type of thing. I don't know. These blankets are clearly magical. A lot of questions aren't going to get answered satisfactorily. Or, or just like really, really thin, like to the point where you can kind of like kind of see through them and you can like see a little bit better each time. That's what I'm going with. Okay. I yeah. like that. Um, so I was going to say what could possibly scare such a formidable being, but then you came in with a theory before I said that. So, I mean, your theory is great, but that's and not correct. the answer. <laughs> the answer is something that's a super common theme in mythology. Someone made a prophecy of the future, which mm. involves the main character being overthrown by his progeny. Yeah, never never before. before. Ever. So, I, in, I, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, in the religion of Druidism that the ancient, Cel- ancient Celts practiced, Druids were like the most educated and powerful people in society. They were teachers, priests, and judges, and scientists. Uh, they were exempt from battle and taxes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, super important. Nice. They're the ones that communicated between the gods and the humans. Um, and in Irish mythology, druids were a prophetic and educated people who would foretell your future. So sort of like, I'll say it this time, I think sort of like the oracle in ancient Greek and, yeah. and Roman. But like, you know, more jaws besides just that part. But the okay. pro- the prophesizing, that's that's the oracle part. Yes. Um. So, so Balor, he's terrified he'll be overthrown because the Druids had foreseen a child born of his daughter Enya would one day defeat him, killing him and taking his lands and riches. Hmm. So wait, hold on. Is there any chance at all that something unique happens here where he does something that might just cause the prophecy to come true? Um... Yes, but it does not follow the theme that it's something he's trying to do to avoid the prophecy. Mm, It's like a completely different thing he does that foils him. Good. You shall see. I shall. So like every other king in every other tale ever written, Balor is now going to lock his daughter in a tall tower to stop any man from ever finding her. Yep. Good strategy. Always That always Always works works out in the end. This tall tower was on Tory Island. Or Balor lives. And it was guarded by 12 women so that his daughter would never see a man. Ah, yes. So the only way a man could get to Enya was in her dreams. Oh. Which one did. A handsome man starts to appear to Enya while she sleeps, but she doesn't know who he is. Meanwhile, Balor is up to something. Like all tyrants, Balor wishes to be the richest and most powerful. He has heard tales of a white cow with green spots that produces such an abundance of milk and calves that she has made the clan who owns her rich beyond their wildest dreams. Hmm. Balor has decided that he needs that cow. His problem is that she is very well guarded. And radioactive. I would like to interject that it could also be a... Uh, well, the, the cow is a she. And, and yet, some writers wrote about it as, as a he... In the internet um, research. Okay. Which would not make any sense with the milk and the cows. Or the cows. Yeah. So I'm, I'm struggling to understand why studying ancient history means you can't understand basic biology. But well, I just wanted to point that out because it was super weird. But that people kept possible. saying he all the time. Anything's possible when you have a radioactive slash moldy cow. 
I was picturing it like beautiful grass patches growing out of her. Ireland is like this green land of the green grass and meadows. Okay. That's much prettier. Hmm. Um, so said cow named Glass Gavlin is owned by the lord of the clan, Keon. Sure. Keon and his two brothers, Soin and Goinu, accompany the cow each day from her shed to the pasture and back to watch over her because neighboring clans keep trying to steal her. Totally. Balor, apparently, has the ability to shapeshift, <laughs> which is just coming up now. So he comes up with a cunning plan. He morphs into a little red-headed boy. And he waits and he watches until he sees his opportunity. Soen has been left alone with Glass Gavlin, as his brothers had private matters to discuss at Goinu's forge. Sure. The little boy walks up to Soen and says to him, Sir... Do you know your brothers plot against you? Even now they have taken iron from your forge with which to make a great sword for Keon that he will use to kill you. Hmm. So In must not trust his brothers even a little bit, for this is all it takes for him to abandon Glass Gavlin and run off to find Keon and Goinu. He doesn't question the boy or ask him how he knows this information and he isn't worried about the cow because he very smartly left this strange little boy who he has never seen before in charge of guarding it. Good idea. Now, predictably, as soon as Soen is out of sight, Balor returns once again to his hideous one-eyed giant form and takes the cow back to Tory Island with him. After Keon notices Soen approaching the forge without the cow, he quickly figures out what has happened. But it's too late. All he's able to do is watch helplessly as Balor sails away with Glass Gavlin. Keon searches high and low for a way to retrieve his prized cow, eventually arriving at the home of Birog, the mountain fairy. Keon asks her how he could possibly get his precious cow back from the tyrant Balor. Birog replies, Glass Gavlin cannot be retrieved while Balor lives. None can withstand Balor's evil eye tough one yeah keon accepts this news and straight away begins to plan how he could kill this powerful foe but nothing comes to him nothing he has no clue how he's supposed to kill balor and so he asked Birog for her advice how can he defeat him you cannot brave keon answers the fairy another will perform that task now this is an introduction by me, but you'd think B-Rog would have mentioned that part when she first told Keon that Baller needed killing? Like, that would have been more helpful, right? She just stood there and watched him think of a, try to think, and, and you know, for, I'm assuming a long time, because it was all try as he might, he couldn't think of anything, and she just stood there watching him sure. try to figure out how to kill Baller, knowing the whole time that he can't. Not super helpful, that's all I'm saying. Okay. This was not the news Keon was hoping for, and he lamented that he would not be able to complete this task himself. He didn't have time to moat for long, though, as Birog summoned a mighty wind to transport Keon to Tory Island. Oh. Or perhaps she summoned a banshee to take him, depending on which source you use. Sounds good. Like a cool. Yeah. A cool riding a banshee seems cooler. I don't think you'd be riding so much as a banshee, like grabbing you. They're pretty terrifying, though. I don't know. Yeah. Well, he was clearly blown or put right into the tower through a window or something. Uh, because the next thing you know, 
Anya has seen Kion, and she recognizes him as the man from her dreams. Got it. Then he either seduces her, which that wording in mythology usually implies a lack of consent, or they fall in love, which is nicer. Sure. Love at first sight seemed to happen a lot in mythology. Yeah. But whichever way it happened, Enya becomes pregnant, and Kion is whisked away back to the mainland. Hmm. By said wind or banshee, possibly? Yeah. It didn't specify. Time goes by, and Enya gives birth to triplets. Three identical baby boys. Though she was somehow able to hide a triplet pregnancy from her 12 female guards and her father, there was no hiding this. Hmm. Her luck had run out. Balor found out about the babies and flew into uncontrollable rage. He had gone through all his trouble to make sure Enya would never have children, and now she has three. I bet you can guess what he does. Yeah. Yeah. So he orders the three babies to be placed in a sack and thrown into the sea. Unfortunately, two of the babies did drown. But miraculously, the sack broke open and one baby floated free. Shocking. Birog the fairy, being pretty darn helpful this time, had been watching and waiting for an opportunity to intervene. So she rescues the child and brings him to his father, Keon. Mm-hmm. Keon names him Lou, meaning to bind by oath. Understanding that Lou would never be safe if Balor knew of his survival, Keon sent his son to be protected by Talta, the goddess of the Great Plain. There, he was blessed with a quiet childhood, and he was loved abundantly, especially by the god of the sea, Mananon MacLear, who took on a role of foster, file, foster father for the child. Good. But the peace was not to last. As an adult, Lou was destined to play a key role in history, and Balor, the great smiter, would never forget the prophecy of his destruction by Lou. And before we go on to the second story, are you now wondering what happened to Glass Gavlin? Did she live? For how long? Did Keon ever get her back? Were you wondering that? I, I mean, was wondering that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I was all Googling, trying to find out another tale in which the resolution to this story happens. Um, so the answer is whatever you think, because she's never mentioned ever again in mythology. <laughs> Good. Maybe in some of the lost things. Maybe we'll find out one day what happened to Glass Gavlin. Or maybe you can make it up. Exactly. Isn't it fun that way? It is. I No, I don't agree. I hate books that I am with those. <laughs> oh, you can decide your own ending endings. God, so lazy. This is tale number two, The Defeat of Balor. This story begins when Lou comes of age and decides to strike out on his own. He journeys to the home of the Tuaha de Danan in the city of Terra. He intends to join the Tuaha de, who are known as the people of the goddess Danu, as they are the people of his foster father, Mananon MacLear. Now, Tara is surrounded by a great wall. To get in, you must have the approval of the gatekeeper, who requires every person who enters Tara to have a unique skill. When Lou reaches the gate, he tells the gatekeeper, I am Lou, the son of Keon and Enya, and the grandson of Balor. 
Tell King Nuwada that I wish to join his house. So the gatekeeper asks him what skill he has that will be useful to the Tuaha day. Carpentry, he replies. We already have a carpenter, says the gatekeeper. Hmm, it's too bad. Okay, no, no. Okay, says Lou. He's no problem. He's not worried. He's well rounded. He has a lot to offer. I am also a smith, Lou tells the doorman. But they already have a smith. And they already have a champion, a swordsman, a harpist, a hero, a physician, a warrior, a bard, a historian, and a sorcerer. Oh dear. Yeah. Now Lou is getting a little worried. Surely he has something to offer that Tara has need of. Finally, he tells the gatekeeper, if you have anyone who is skilled in every one of those areas, you may invite me to leave. But if you do not, tell King Nuwada that I wish to enter Terra as Saville Danok, the master of all arts. King Nuwada, of course, wants some proof that Lu is indeed Saville Danok. Right. So cue, like, training montage before the talent show. I mean, that'll make just as much sense as what actually happens. Perfect. So to test the newcomer, for reasons I don't even a little bit understand... The king orders Lou to compete in a chess tournament with all the best players Tara has to offer. Chess is old. Right. (laughs) I don't know how chess proves you're a master of any of those other things or all other things. Well, so here's the thing. The board is made of wood, so he had to use his carpentry to make the board. Mm -hmm. And all the pieces are made of metal, so he had to smith all those things. That's two down. There's like eight more to go. He had to like... In the smithing part, he had to create the molds. That was pretty artistic. Um, and he had to fight the iron out of the hands of the military. That's how he was a champion. This all makes sense. You're it's all coming a, together. You're doing a really good job making this up as you go. I, I'm proud of you. Good. Yeah. Okay. But back to the back to the chess tournament. Apparently, that is all that King Nuwada needed because when Lu wins the tournament. The king allows him to join their people and live in Terra. Now, at this time in the history of the Tuaha de Danon, they are under the quite harsh rule of the Fumarians. Hmm. After a while, living in Terra with the Tuaha de, Lu asks King Nuada why. Why do he and his people live as Fomar slaves? The king tells him it's simply impossible to change. But there are too many of them, and they're too mighty to overcome. Indignant, Lou declares, it is better to die fighting for our freedom than to live as their slaves. After this rousing pep talk, they both agree that they must plan a rebellion. This one-line pep talk changed the king's mind completely. It's fantastic. Lou's amazing. Yeah. Clearly he's gifted at orating. Oh, okay, that too. Yeah. Yeah. They agree that their people must be free. They gather the other four leaders of the Tuaha Day. There's Doida, the chief druid, Diane Kit, the physician, Ugm, the champion, and Goinu, the smith. Those words are all so hard to say. <laughs> they meet in secret for over a year, planning and plotting the perfect revolution. They make the very tough decision to delay the start of their plan for three years. So they can prepare without arousing any suspicion. 
Okay. While they wait, Lou seeks the help of Mananon McClear, who is more than happy to be of assistance, obviously, his foster son. He bestows upon Lou some very powerful and, quite frankly, awesome gifts. Lou is given the mighty steed Ambar, who can run faster than the cold wind of spring and who can travel over land and sea with equal ease. That is a cool horse. Lou also receives a sword Answerer, which is said to render the bravest warriors cowards and make cuts from which none can recover. Hmm. Last, Mananon McClear gives Lou a magnificent set of his own armor. It's impenetrable and it shines like a second sun. Okay. So he got magical stuff from his foster daddy and now he's ready to go. Yeah, pretty invincible at that point. The troubling news that his grandson is amassing a great army soon reaches Balor. Of course. It has not slipped his mind that Lou was prophesied to be his doom. There is an added detail in this part of the story, by the way, that the prophecy also says Lou is fated to liberate the Tuaha Day, and they've known this the whole time. Oh. But not mention it, apparently. Sure. So, you know, let's see how he does. Okay. Balor decides he will need to find some help to overcome this threat. And so he forges an alliance with the exiled king of the Tuaha Day, Brez the Beautiful. Hmm. That is literally the only time he's mentioned in the story, and it doesn't come up again. But I just wanted to say it because the name was cool. I liked Brez the Beautiful. Of course. This was a case of too little too late. The Tuaha Day makes the first move. And with that, the fate of Balor and the Fomarians is all but sealed. King Nuwada's cupbearers make it so that the lakes and wells give water only to Nuwada's soldiers and not to the Fomar. It doesn't say how they accomplished this, so I'm going to assume it was magic, since the Tuaha de Danan were accomplished sorcerers. That's my guess. It's magic. Magical water. Like in Harry Potter, when Dumbledore has to drink all the water, because otherwise it just... I don't know. Magical cups with water. Great. The druids begin to rain fire and disease down upon the Fomar army, and the Tuaha Day attack with magical swords and spears that Goinyu has forged to never miss their target. Hmm. It is then that Carbara, the bard, sings out a poem so savage and so demoralizing that it causes the Fomarians to lose heart. And they can't live very long without hearts. So, pretty much win right there. Magical races of hideous, ugly giants might have different physiology than we know of. That might be true. It's possible, is all I'm saying. Meanwhile, every evening after the fighting has ended, the physician, Diane Kit, and his men round up all the injured and killed Tuaha Day. Yes, that's right, the killed ones too. Plunge them into a magical well. By morning, all the warriors emerge from the well fully healed and able to rejoin the battle, which is some pretty sweet magic. Yeah, it's a little OP. You may be wondering how it's not a little OP, but the next part of the story says that despite all of those advantages, the Tuaha Day just can't seem to gain any ground in this struggle to liberate themselves against the Fomarians. Apparently the Fomarians have some tricks of their own, but I they're guess not that would mentioned. Make sense. <laughs> they're yeah. not mentioned at all because at this point of the battle, neither Lou nor Balor are participating in the fighting. Well, why would they? 
They're both just too valuable to their respective sides, and to lose them would be devastating. So right. they weren't allowed to fight. Balor seems to come to this decision on his own, or at least he agrees to it. But Lou objects to being sidelined. He's the typical hero who wants to get in there. The fighting is fierce, and he is just itching to help out. So Nuwada orders nine champion fighters to watch Lou and keep him behind the lines. But there really is only so much they can do when Lou is so determined to be involved. Balor, however, changes his mind entirely, making a desperate last-minute decision to join the battle when he feels it's slipping away. Upon hearing this news, Lou finally finds a way to escape his guards, and he races to the front line, hoping to intervene and slaughter the tyrant before he can unleash his ultimate weapon. But alas, he is too late. Lou arrives just in time to see Balor facing off against King Nuwada. The two spar for several minutes while Lou races closer and closer. Finally, just as Lou reaches the pair, Balor kills Nuwada with a single swift strike of his sword. Upon witnessing this truly distressing sight, Lou challenges Balor to combat. The great smiter bellows to his armies to help him unlid his monstrous eye so that he may destroy Lou and the Tuaha Day once and for all. Lou pulls out his sling and waits. Steady, patient. Just as the evil eye of Balor starts to crack open, Lou unleashes the perfect shot. A stone flies into the exposed eye with such force that the eye is driven into Balor's head, bursting through his skull in the back, killing him instantly. But what doesn't die instantly is his eye. In the throes of its death, the evil eye of Balor vaporizes hundreds of the Fomarian troops that had been gathered around him. The remaining Fomar turn tail and flee when they witness the mighty Lu beheading their king, Balor the Great Smiter. They board their ships and sail away, never to return to Ireland. Where'd they go? <laughs> I was trying to be all dramatic and you ruined it. I have no answers to that question. Hmm. Okay. I was doing my dramatic voice. Did you like it? I did. It was very good. Unfortunately, that's all the stories we have time for in part one. Um, Because the next story is going to require a cycle change. And I do want to talk about the next cycle a little bit. Great. So next episode, we'll be back with some more Irish tales. I'll tell you about Cucullin and King Alil and Queen Maeve, Finn McCool, which is an awesome name. Yeah, it is. Oshin and uh, a lot of other characters too. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Join us again next time for part two and some more crazy cool mythology. I hope you learned something new. 